Well, good morning. So glad to be here with you this morning on this beautiful Sabbath day. Character matters. And after Saul became king, things started to be revealed. His character started to bleed through. That is who Saul really was. And as we read through the pages of Scripture there in 1 Samuel, we see very clearly that Saul was selfish, oftentimes angry, hateful, mean-spirited, vengeful. Saul is remembered most by a terrible decision to make an unlawful sacrifice. Do you remember the story? Then Saul is remembered by a rash oath that ultimately incriminated his son. And finally, with Saul, we have open disobedience against God when he spares King Agag. And every time, Saul tried to rationalize what he had done. Now, if you brought your Bibles, I want to look. We are uh, going to begin a series starting today. Uh, and so we're going to be looking at the accounts here in 1 Samuel. Uh, but just as a way of introducing where we're going here... We first have to paint the stage of what the situation was before David comes onto the scene. And so if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 15, and we begin reading there. 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 24, it says, Then Saul said to Samuel, this is Saul speaking, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because, and notice here how he is making excuses for himself, I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now therefore, please, pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. Can't we just get past this? Can't we just move on? Isn't this, this really isn't that big a deal, is it? Saul was greatly concerned, we could say, about image, about what people thought, his perception, his rating in the polls, we could say. And so he's saying here, Samuel, why don't you just come with me? No one will know that I disobeyed. Just return and let's worship like we've always done. But Samuel doesn't buy that. Verse 26, we read, But Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And as Samuel turned around to go away, Saul seized the edge of his robe, and it tore. So Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the strength of Israel, talking about God, will not lie nor relent, for he is not a man that he should relent. Other translations say... God is not mortal. He does not change his mind. Then he, Saul, said, I have sinned, yet honor me now. Please, before the elders of my people and before Israel, and return with me that I may worship the Lord your God. You've caught me in the act, Samuel. I've confessed it privately. Now, can't you just come on back with me, and we'll just go on as if nothing has happened? We need to ask, is Saul truly repentant? No, he's not. And as we read on, by divine direction, Samuel yielded to the king's request that no occasion might be given for a revolt, but he remained only as a silent witness of the service, 
And then Samuel kills King Agag and returns to his home, never to see Saul again. The tragic story of Saul is that he never, ever fully repented of his sin. His obsession with image continued until the day he died. The people had elected Saul king. But friends, he was no longer qualified. What are they to do? Israel is surrounded by enemies and they need someone to carry the scepter. But who? Samuel didn't know and couldn't imagine. The people didn't know either. And I imagine there was a sense of panic. No one knew except God. And that's where we begin our new series that I will be preaching entitled, David, A Man After God's Own Heart. David's an interesting figure in Scripture, and we're going to look at a lot of stories down through. I did not realize until this past week, but of all the people written of in Scripture or mentioned in Scripture, more chapters are dedicated to the man David than any other individual in Scripture. I find that interesting and fascinating. And this idea that David is a man after God's own heart, mentioned both in the Old and New Testament. What does that mean? We're going to explore that a little bit. Was David perfect? Well, by no means. Were there some things to emulate? Well, yes, there was. And so we're going to look at that. And today's piece is the first, and I've entitled it, A Nobody, Nobody Noticed. David, part one, and nobody, nobody noticed. And so, as we saw here, beginning with some of these verses this morning, Israel was not doing well. Their leader had turned away from the Lord. Oh, he would give lip service, but it was all about image for Saul. And now they're surrounded by enemies. What was Israel to do? Samuel didn't know, the people didn't know, and there was a sense of panic. No one knew, except, what did I say before? God knew. What Samuel failed to realize, what we often fail to realize, is that behind the scenes, before God even flung the stars into space, God had today in mind. Friends, God had this very week, we could even say the last two weeks in mind. And in fact, he had you in mind. And God knew exactly what he was going to do. Friends, God is never at a loss to know what he's going to do in your or my situation. I think it's something we need to keep in mind right now. As the news, as in the news, we have seen the worst act of terror played out since 9-11. The horrific acts not seen since the Holocaust. And then the response to root out this terror group. Even this week, Hamas blaming Israel for the bombing of a hospital when there is solid evidence from four different sources contrary to that. But now everyone is getting worked up and using that as a means. And so we're hearing about Hamas and North Korea and Iran and Lebanon, even Russia and so on. Where is this going to go? Where will this take us? We can see how this could escalate very, very quickly. Where will this lead? Many are quick to reassign, as they do in any type of situation similar to this, all of the prophecies and revelation and so on and so forth. Does this have a, a mention in prophecy? Well, 
Not exactly, but could it lead to something that we've talked about and the Bible speaks of very clearly? It surely could. And war is always horrific, filled with death and suffering and heartache and pain, uncertainty, fear, anxiety, panic. Does this situation need our prayers? Absolutely it does. But I think this is also a really good time to remember. Before God flung the stars into space, God had today in mind. He had this very week in mind. He knows exactly what's going to happen. He knows exactly how this will play out. And in fact, prophecy reminds us of that over and over and over. God doesn't guess, friends. He knows. We can trust Him. And not just on the world stage. Friends, God knows what's happening in your life personally. What you're struggling with. What you're wrestling with. What you're overwhelmed by or perplexed. Anxious. What you're afraid of. Whatever your situation, I have good news for you. God is never at a loss to know what he's going to do in your situation. He knows perfectly well what is best for you and for me. Our problem is we don't know. And we want to know. But that's where faith comes in. Faith is counting on him when we do not know what tomorrow holds. And so coming back to our story here in Scripture, it's important to remember, when a man or woman of God fails, nothing of God fails. Did you hear that? When a man or woman of God fails, nothing of God fails. I have a friend who has walked out of the Seventh-day Adventist church, doesn't call himself an Adventist anymore, because of how he was mistreated by church members and even some church leaders. Now, I don't like to be mistreated by church members or church leaders either. Have I been mistreated by some? Uh-huh. In fact, I could write a whole book about sob stories, if you will. But to do that is to miss the point. Friends, church members and leaders will let you down, but God will never let you down. And we're not here because of church members that make us feel good. We're here because of God, who is always faithful, who never lets us down. He never fails us. And so, yes, we're here to support one another, to help one another. But in a hospital where some are sick, when we know there's going to be wheat and tares, we have to keep our eyes fixed on Christ. So when a man or woman of God fails, nothing of God fails. Remember that. When a man or woman of God changes, nothing of God changes. When someone dies, nothing of God dies. When our lives are altered by the unexpected, nothing of God is altered or unexpected. Isaiah 65, 24, it says, Before they call, I will answer. And while they are still speaking, I will hear. Friends, before you utter a word, God promises, I am involved in answering. In fact, while you're speaking, I'm involved in bringing it to pass. The very thing I planned from the beginning. Friends, God knows exactly what he's going to do. And nothing can restrain him bringing that about or, or bringing it to pass. And that's a beautiful part of this story. Listen to God's word to Samuel. We find it in chapter 16 now. Still in 1 Samuel, chapter 16, verse 1. It says, Now the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul, 
seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel. Fill your horn with oil and go. I am sending you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided myself a king among his sons. God always knows what he's going to do. And notice who is selecting the king this time. What did it say there? I have provided myself a king among his sons. 1 Samuel chapter 12, we don't have to go back too many pages, and we'll read this in verse 13. Now, therefore, here is the king whom who? Whom you have chosen and whom you have desired. Friends, this time around, God says it's different. The people haven't chosen this man. God says he's my man, and that's important to remember. And so, 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 2, it says, And Samuel said... How can I go? If Saul hears it, he'll what? He'll kill me. Does that sound at all familiar? God says go, and we say, right, got it. But before we get up off our knees, we say, now wait a minute. Lord, how can I pull this off? Simple question. Where was Samuel's focus? On God or on Saul? It was on Saul. Now, from a human standpoint, Samuel was right. King Saul was murderous, but friends, God was fully aware of this situation. And in fact, God was going to use Saul to shape the future king, as we will see. Do you have a Saul in your life? Someone that irritates you? Rubs you the wrong way? Is downright rude and mean-spirited? Friends, God knows all about that too. And he's going to use that person to grow your character as well. Listen to God's response to Samuel. Second part of verse 2, it says, But the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Then invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. You shall anoint for me the one I name to you. What are you to do, Samuel? Follow the leader. That's what. You don't have to be smart to be obedient, to which I will say amen. You don't have to be clever. All you have to do is obey. God's saying, look, I'm going to show you what to do. You just go. I'm giving you all the details you need to know. You just go. Meanwhile, behind the scenes, there's David. And he doesn't know anything about what Samuel and God are talking about. Think about that. Over there on the other side of the country, what's David doing? He's, well, he's keeping sheep. That's his job. For him, it's just like any other morning. Little did he know his life would never be the same again. I believe God has some extremely exciting things in mind for his children, for you. For some, it may happen tomorrow. For some, it may happen next month, maybe next year. Maybe it's not till five years down the road. And while we don't know, we can count on him to never lead us astray. He knows exactly where he's taking us. Our job is to obey. It doesn't say, thou shalt be clever. Thou shalt figure it out on your own. No, you just obey. Follow the leader. And so in verse 4, 
We read, so Samuel did what the Lord said and went to Bethlehem. Amen. And it says, and the elders of the town trembled at his coming and said, do you come peaceably? Do you see the fear that stretched across the land? Why is Samuel coming to Bethlehem? What's wrong? What's going on? Is this good? Is this bad? Is this otherwise? And we keep reading verse 5. And he said, peaceably I come to sacrifice to the Lord. Sanctify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. And so he's coming in peace. But they're still unsure what this is all about. And they're not the only ones. Samuel doesn't know exactly who God is going to choose. And we keep reading in verse 6. So it was when they came that he looked at Eliab and said, Surely the Lord anointed, uh, the Lord's anointed is before him. Eliab must have looked the part. He probably was tall, noble, impressive. We can assume he was a man of battle because in just the very next chapter, he's the one fighting with Saul and the troops against Goliath. But Samuel could not see his character. Also in chapter 17, we see Eliab being critical, negative, looking down on others. And so while Samuel was impressed with all the externals, like most of us are, there's something much deeper to pay attention to. Spirit prophecy tells us that Eliab did not fear the Lord, and he would have been a proud, exacting ruler. In verse 8 of our story, we see Abinadab, the second oldest, but God says, that's not my man. In verse 9, we see Shema passed by. Neither has the Lord chosen this one, we're told. Of Jesse's eight sons, seven are present, and the Lord hasn't chosen any of them. Why is this? Verse 7 gives us our answer. Let's read it together. 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks where? At the heart. Outward appearance in Hebrew says literally man looks at the face. I don't know about you, but I'd like to be able to see people not by face, but by their heart. Sadly, only God can do that. So we have to look to Him to give us, with our limited focus, that kind of discernment. Because we don't possess it ourselves. Patriarchs and Prophets 638 says this, The wisdom and excellence revealed in the character and deportment express the true beauty of the man. And it is the inner worth, the excellency of the heart that determines our acceptance with the Lord of hosts. So picking up our story, verse 11, And Samuel said to Jesse, Are all the young men here? Then he said, There remains yet the youngest, and there he is, keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and bring him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. There's the youngest. Certainly I didn't think you would choose him, otherwise I would have had him here. But after all, somebody has to watch the sheep. 
And so we continue reading verse 12. So he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy. The word really means red or reddish. Maybe he was in the sun all the time. Maybe he had red hair. Maybe he was some of both. Had bright eyes. Good looking. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him. For this is the one. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel rose and went to Ramah. Here's David, just a teenager. He walks in, smelling like sheep, and he's anointed to be the next king. Now the phrase, in the midst of his brothers, can also be translated, from among his brothers. What's the difference? One makes it sound like he was anointed in front of his brothers. The other is more the idea that he is chosen from his brothers, but that the anointing itself was not witnessed by the brothers. So which is it? I would suggest the latter. Why? Because we'll see in the next chapter that David comes to the front lines to check on his brothers, and Iliad the oldest, the warrior type that Samuel thought was the man, he's there, and he taunts David. And do you remember what he has to say? says Eliab's anger was aroused against David and he said why did you come down here and with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness I know your pride and the insolence of your heart for you have come down to see the battle friends if he knew everything I imagine his taunting would be a little bit different oh David you think you're so special don't you Go ahead and tell us why you're so special. Who do you think you are, David? And now go tell Saul who you think you are. Don't you think his taunting would have been different? And so rather he was chosen among, in the midst of his brothers, not being that he was anointed right there as they watched, but rather with all of his brothers, he's the one that is chosen and secretly anointed to be king. Spirit of Prophecy further supports this. It says Samuel had not made known his errand, even to the family of Jesse. And the ceremony of anointing David had been performed in secret. Why? So it wouldn't be a problem for David, with his brothers, with Saul, with everyone. Eventually people will know, that's true. But maybe not just yet. She goes on, it was an intimation we could say it was a clue, it was an indication to the youth of the high destiny awaiting him that amid all the varied experiences and perils of his coming years, and he will have plenty, this knowledge might inspire him to be true to the purpose of God to be accomplished by his life. So David is given a clue, an indication that a high destiny awaited him, that God had a purpose for his life. And this is a big deal. The prophet of the Lord just came to your father's house. He summoned you to come out of the field. He anoints your head with oil. You are chosen of the Lord to be the next king. And then Samuel returns to Ramah. And where does David go? Did he go to the nearest department store to get some new clothes? A nice suit, perhaps? I have to be taken seriously now. Did he get some new business cards? King-elect. Did he make any posts on social media saying, hey, guess what? My shepherding days are over. I got a promotion. Does David do any of this? Let's go back to our story. And here we switch gears a little bit. We return to Saul. Still in chapter 16, the next verse that we need to read is verse 14. And it says, but the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a distressing spirit from the Lord troubled him. 
And Saul's servant said to him, Surely a distressing spirit from God is troubling you. Let our master now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is a skillful player on the harp. And it shall be that he will play with his hand when the distressing spirit from God is upon you, and you shall be well. So Saul said to his servants, Provide me now a man who can play well and bring him to me. Verse 18, then one of the servants answered and said, Look, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing and mighty man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and handsome person, and the Lord is with him. Verse 19, therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me your son David, who is what? With the sheep. Those are significant Last three words to that verse. Don't miss where David is. He's with the sheep. He went right back to the flock. We see it again in the very next chapter. I put it on the screen for you. 1 Samuel 17, 14 and 15. David was the youngest and the three oldest followed Saul, but David occasionally went and returned from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. Here he is, king-elect, the king's personal musician, What's he doing feeding his father's flock, keeping them, tending them? But friends, in all of this, I think we clearly see why he's chosen by God. We see into the heart of David. Why is he still tending his father's sheep? Because that's still his job, and he's faithfully doing it. His anointing did not go to his head. He didn't bronze the horn of oil and hang it up on the wall. He didn't expect special treatment. No, he just went back to the sheep. Spent time in nature, communing with God, prayerful. I imagine asking God, what does all this mean? How is this going to unfold? Patriarchs and Prophets 641 says, The great honor conferred upon David did not serve to elate him. Notwithstanding the high position which he was to occupy, he quietly continued his employment, content to await the development of the Lord's plans in his own time and way. Relatively short quote, easy to read, hard to live, isn't it? To be content, to occupy whatever God has put before you for this time. Aren't we always anxious for the next step, the next thing? Lord, is this really what you want? Are you ready for me to do something else, go somewhere else, be something else? To be content, to await the development of the Lord's plans in his own time and way, as David, we see, is content. Going back to the sheep. Continuing, as humble and modest as before his anointing, the shepherd boy returned to the hills and watched and guarded his flocks as tenderly as ever. This is what makes for a good ruler. He's humble, he's modest, he's approachable, he's authentic, he's faithful in the little things. Who cares about these sheep anymore? I got bigger fish to fry. No, he's looking after the sheep just as tenderly as he ever had before. And so a few things I think we should keep in mind when God speaks. How are we to respond? First off, God's solutions are often strange and simple, so be open. God's solutions are often strange and simple, so be open. We try to make God complex and complicated. He isn't. Amid all the complications with Saul and the throne, God simply said to Samuel, go where I tell you to go. 
I've got a simple answer. I've got a new man. You just follow me, and I'll show you. Don't make the carrying out of God's will complicated. It isn't. Just stay open to his strange and yet simple solutions. Secondly, God's promotions are usually sudden and surprising, so be ready. Promotions can be like that. You don't go searching for them, but with a phone call, it's there. And God watches you as you faithfully carry out your task, and he says, I know what I'm doing. In a sudden and surprising moment, you be ready. I know where you are. I know how to find you. You just stay ready as you carry out your job. Can't help but think about the greatest promotion of all, to live with Jesus for eternity, friends. And we're told it will come at a time that we do not expect. While we think we are awake, we have the parable of the ten virgins who are all asleep before the return. Jesus' coming will be a sudden and surprising event, but he will split the clouds and be with us. The final moments will be rapid ones, as events even today show us how quickly things can unravel. And number three, God's selections are always sovereign and sure, so be sensitive. That applies to choosing a mate as well as losing a mate. It applies to our being moved from one place to another, even though we thought we would remain there another 10 years. And it also applies to those God appoints to fill the shoes of another. And how easy it is to second-guess God's selections, isn't it? But all the more reason to remind ourselves that His selections are sovereign and sure. Our calling is to be faithful, in the demanding tasks, whether it's our education or our marriage or occupation or just the daily grind of life. When God speaks, how are we to respond? Well, we're to be open. We're to be ready. We're to be sensitive. The year was 1809. In that year, everyone was focused on Napoleon, who was marching across Austria like a fire across a Kansas wheat field as hamlets and villages and cities fell into his grip, people began to wonder if all the world would someday fall into his hands. During the same period of time, thousands of babies were born in Britain and America. But who cared about babies and bottles and cribs and cradles while Napoleon was doing his thing in Austria? But maybe they should have cared. Edgar Allan Poe, American writer and poet, born in 1809. William Gladstone, Prime Minister of the United Kingdom for 12 years, born in 1809. Alfred Tennyson, one of the most well-loved Victorian poets, born in 1809. Oliver Wendell Holmes, Associate Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court, born in 1809. Robert Charles Winthorpe, Speaker of the United States House of Representatives. Charles Darwin, also born 1809. Abraham Lincoln, born 1809. The lives of these statesmen and writers and thinkers and influencers mark the genesis of an era. And we can debate whether or not their contributions were positive or negative. But the fact remains, nobody cared about the nobodies while Napoleon was moving through Austria. The strange thing is, today, only history buffs could name even one battle that Napoleon fought in Austria. But there is not a life or a personal life today that has not been touched in some way by the lives of these men and, 
uh, as I, that I have just named, nobody's, nobody noticed. If you would have been a Jew in the year 1020 B.C., the same could have been said. All our attention would have been focused upon a man named Saul, the first king of Israel. He was the focal point of the Jewish world at that time. He was taking the country by storm. Meanwhile, a nobody was keeping the sheep for his father. On the Judean hillsides near the hamlet of Bethlehem, a little boy whom nobody noticed except God. Move to 2023. Now everyone's looking to Israel. The Gaza Strip, Hamas, Hezbollah, Iran, Saudi Arabia, China, Russia, America, the West. The list goes on, and the coverage is breathless. All the attention is there, giving us the latest death tolls. Yet there is a little remnant church that nobody knows, nobody knows about or has noticed except God. We could talk about death tolls. You hear it a lot, somewhere around 4,000 now. I don't like death, and the way these deaths have come about is horrific. So I'm not trying to make light of that in any sense. But the reality is, you just do a simple Google search, 150,000 people die on this planet on any and every given day. That means in the last two weeks since this all started, over two million people have died. How many of those people knew the Lord? How many of them were in right relationship with God? And so while all the focus is there, there's this nobody that nobody noticed called the remnant church of Bible prophecy. And God has a plan. He's not taken by surprise. And what is his plan? It's to spread the three angels' messages of Revelation 14. We're to give the everlasting gospel to every nation, tribe, and tongue, and people to worship him that made heaven and earth, the sea, and springs of water. The creator God on his Sabbath day, the memorial of his creation. And to stay away from Babylon because it's fallen, it's fallen. It is made, it's compelled all the nations to drink of the wine of her false doctrine. It's a call to not worship the beast nor receive her mark and avoid the seven last plagues, but rather fear God and worship him. That's the three angels' messages. Friends, in this world, in the news cycle, man looks on the outward appearance, but God is focused on the heart. And the three angels' messages are the heart of this crisis today. And God is the only true solution to the problems this world faces. Friends, the heart cry today is of a God calling men and women back to himself. The heart cry today is found in three angels' messages of Revelation 14. The heart cry today is to be taken to the world. How? By nobodies that nobody has noticed but that are filled with the Holy Spirit, empowered to give the loud cry, to encircle the globe with the character and revelation of God, to call people out of darkness into his marvelous light. And so the question comes, will you be part of that movement? God wants you to be part of that movement. Well, I'm a nobody. No problem. Nobody notices me. That's okay. God specializes in taking nobodies that nobody notices 
and turning them into somebody that he can use for his greater purpose. Dear Heavenly Father, as we see the world unraveling around us, as we are dealing with things in our own lives and our own work situations and family, Lord, we recognize with greater pressing degree our need of you in every aspect of our lives. Lord, we want to be open to your leading. We want to be ready for your moving, for your call. And we want to be sensitive of the fact that you are sovereign, that your way forward is sure, that we serve a God who sees the end from the beginning. And so we don't have to fear. We don't even have to be clever. We just have to be obedient, to be available to be used, to go to this world before all is done, before probation is closed, and to preach the good news of Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, in the challenges in this world, whether it be on a global scale or an individual scale, may they wake us up to the times in which we are living. May they draw us closer to you. And may we see a God and his love that is so powerful, so all-encompassing, that we can't help but follow. Lord, be with us. Empower us by your Spirit. Guide us, we pray. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated.